Father God, would you please speak through my weak and foolish words and would you show us your wisdom and your truth and would you show us Jesus? Amen. John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you only ever learn one verse from the Bible, then apart from the Lord's Prayer, learn this one. Billy Graham, whose funeral was a week ago, who was one of the most influential Christian evangelists and preachers of the 20th century. He even preached here in Moscow in both in pre- and post-Soviet times. He used to quote John 3.16 when he was asked to do a sound check. He said that even if the sound operator was going to be too busy to listen to what he had to say during the actual event, he knew that at least he would have heard the gospel at least once when he heard John 3.16. For God. There, there, there are few people who would claim to be out-and-out out atheists. There may be a few more who might claim to be agnostics, but most people are aware that there is something or someone who is out there beyond themselves that cannot be seen, heard, or touched, or felt, but that is there and is bigger than them. That's why things like Star Wars and the idea of the force that is out there is so attractive. It touches something deep in here. It's why, as someone put it, there is no such thing as an atheist in a rubber dinghy in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in a storm. <laughs> it all begins with God. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. Creation begins with God. Revelation begins with God. And for God so loved the world, salvation begins with God. So loved We've devalued the word love. I recently read an article by um, a conservative member of parliament in the United Kingdom saying that the Church of England should forget all about the faith stuff because that divided people and simply preach a message of love and peace. When people say that, and quite a few people do, I don't think they've really thought through what they mean by the word love. Um, the deepest it goes is that they think that we should tolerate each other and be nice to each other. It's a good message. It's an important message, I guess. But what orthodox biblical Christianity has to teach is so much richer Biblical love is so much more. It's about a delight in the other. Seeing the other person or the other thing as created in the image of the divine with the potential to become like the divine and delighting in them. Zephaniah 3.17, it's a beautiful verse. It speaks of how God is with you. 
it says he will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. One thinks of a mother holding her baby in her arms and singing over her child. And it's about desire for the other, a deep heart desire to be united in the right way with the other. It's a longing for union, not just that they can get on and live their life while we live our life, but that we can be part of them just as they are part of us and that without them we are not whole. So, for instance, Jesus speaks of how like a mother hen he would embrace us and enfold and gather his children under his wing. And it's about learning to bless each other It's not simply wishing them well, but seeking the absolute best for them. It's blessing them so that they can become the person God meant them to be. It's why God blesses us with his law, to show us the sort of life that is good and right and true. It's why God blesses us with his discipline, to draw us back to himself, to show us that if we pursue the things of this world, We are not pursuing the absolute best for us. It's why God blesses us by giving us himself. For God so loved. At the heart of God there is not indifference. There is not anger. There is not rejection. There is this rich, deep love a love that delights in us and that desires us and that would bless us. The world is not just about love for you or for me or even for his people, the church. At the very beginning after creation, God looks at the world and he sees that it was very good. And the reason that he acted to save us was not simply because he delights in us, but because in some mysterious way the destiny of humanity is tied in with the destiny of this planet, and dare I say, even of the universe. And the day that we'll see the final public revelation, the making known of the sons and daughters of God, will be the day that this creation is set free from what the Bible calls its bondage to decay and die. That he gave his only son. If we truly delight in the other, if we desire union, fellowship, friendship with the other and seek blessing for the other, if we really desire it, then we will give. We will give sacrificially. We will even be prepared to give the most precious thing that we have for the sake of the other. And God gave his only son for us, the son who was absolutely one with him and part of himself and without whom he could not be father. The son who who he had delighted in and who delighted in him from before the beginning of time. The story is told that Martin Luther 
was reading to Mrs. Luther the account of how God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And Mrs. Luther interrupted, God would never ask that of a person. God would never ask them to sacrifice their child. But actually, parents do, in some sort of way, sacrifice their children. We love them, we cherish them, we grow them to give them away, to let them go. You see the consequences when a parent refuses to let go of their child and tries to cling on to them. That is why one of the very traditional rituals in a wedding is when a father or someone from the family gives away their daughter. And as someone who has stood at the front on many occasions uh, and watched it happen, I, I see how bittersweet that is for parents. There are tears of joy at weddings, but there are also tears of pain as you emotionally give away, let go of your child. And what are parents, for instance? And I think they're often the forgotten ones on things like Remembrance Day or, uh, or, or the March of the Eternal Regiment. What of parents who give away their children to go and fight for their country, knowing that they might suffer and die, knowing that they are potentially giving them up to death? As parents, we don't really have the choice of letting our children go. They will go anyway. But Father God loved us and the world so much that he chose to give his only son. And he knew that his son would choose to take on to himself our sin and the sin of the world, that his son would suffer and die. There was no question about what would happen. And yes, there would ultimately be joy but he knew that in sending his son, he was allowing into his heart the wrenching pain of separation and overwhelming grief, a pain and grief that would rest in the heart of God for eternity. I can't really explain it, and I'm using words, probably foolish words, to try and describe a reality that is far beyond the reach of words. What John 3.16 tells us is that the love of God and the love of God for you is unimaginable. We will need all of eternity simply to begin to understand the extent of the love that God has for you. That whoever. Well, that's rather simple. <laughs> it's whoever. Whoever chooses, whoever potentially includes everyone, it includes everybody who currently lives on this planet who has had a birth mother. <laughs> whoever believes in him, that is, who believes in Jesus, who puts their trust in him. It speaks of the moment when we put our trust in him and are saved. Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 14, has reminded Nicodemus of an event that happened many years ago when the people of Israel were wandering through the wilderness. God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and yet they grumbled against God. They said, you only brought us out into the desert to kill us. Oh, and by the way, 
we hate the food. <laughs> They'd stop trusting in God. And so God sends, and note it is God who sends, the plague of serpents. There are snakes everywhere. There are snakes in their tents. There are snakes on the bars. There are snakes in the rucksacks. There are snakes in their socks. There are snakes in their shoes. And whoever is bitten by one of those snakes will die. There was no medicine, no antidote, no treatment. And the people cry out to God and ask him to have mercy. They realize they've turned from God, that they are perishing, and they repent. So God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole, and whoever turns and looks at the snake will be saved. That is all they have to do. Listen, says Jesus to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted the serpent on the pole and the people were saved by looking at it, so I am going to be lifted up. Whoever looks at me and believes in me, who puts their trust in me, will be saved and will have eternal life. But believes in him or trusts in him speaks also about an ongoing relationship. Because if we trust him, it's not just trusting for one moment and then not trusting him. It's about going on. And verses 19 to 21, Jesus speaks of how he is the light who's come into the world. And that if we believe in him as the eternal son of God, if we listen to his words and daily put our trust in him, then we will be people who come to the light and allow the light of God to shine in our hearts. Philosopher Nicholas Beale and scientist Professor John Polkinghorne use the following story to illustrate the nature of biblical faith. A philosopher, a scientist, and a simple man, none of whom could swim, were trapped in a cove with sheer cliff faces. They split up, but the tide kept coming in. Rescuers lowered a rope with a safety harness. The philosopher said, ah, this looks like a rope, but I might be mistaken. It could be wishful thinking or an illusion. So he didn't attach himself, and he was drowned. The scientist said, ah, this is an 11 millimeter polyester rope with a breaking strain of 2,800 kilograms. It conforms to the MR1081 standard. He then proceeded to give an exhaustive and entirely correct analysis of the rope's physical and chemical properties. But he didn't attach himself, and he was drowned. The simple man said, Ah, I'm not sure if this is a rope or a python's tail, but it's my only chance, so I'm grabbing it and holding on with my whole life. He was saved. Should not perish. This is the bit that people find difficult. This is hard. It means that people without Jesus, if we're without Jesus, we are without God. We've chosen to cut ourselves off from the source of life of truth. 
It is, if you forgive me for twisting an illustration, this may not be a brilliant illustration or particularly correct, but adapted from current news stories, a bit like a country choosing itself to cut off the pipeline that brings the oil that it needs into the country. For a long time, there doesn't seem to be a problem because it's living on reserves. But there will come a day when the reserves run out. And although we've cut ourselves off from God, there are sufficient reserves of the goodness and blessing of God in this creation for us to carry on as if nothing has changed. But there will come a day when the reserve runs out and we will perish. Without God, we're building a wall around ourselves. We're cutting ourselves off from light and life. And it's not only our physical bodies that will die, our souls are shrinking and shriveling up. J.K. Rowling's description of Voldemort, when his soul has become an eternal, whimpering, fetus-like baby, discarded under a railway station seat, is one of the most chilling metaphors of what we are becoming without God. Should not perish, but have eternal life. God loves us, and he doesn't want that to be our destiny. He does not want anyone to perish. Instead, he delights in us and desires for us to come into communion with him, to know him, And he longs to bless us so that we can begin to live as we were made to live because that is life. Eternal life in the Bible begins when a person turns to Jesus in trust, when they look to him and when they receive him, when they invite him to come and be their friend, even to come right deep into their lives and to shape what they desire and what they think. That is when the connection is made. It's when, if you like, the pipeline is turned back on. And this life is so rich that not even physical death can destroy it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. My dear friends, learn that verse. Reflect on that verse. But more important, receive the gift. Believe in Jesus. When I was a vicar in inner city London, in Holloway, we ran a mission. We invited an evangelist to speak to different groups that we already ran. One of those was a Wednesday afternoon service, mainly for people who were older. Frank used to come to those services. In fact, he'd come to St. Mary Magdalene's for many years, most of his life, and he was in his late 80s. But as Andy spoke, I don't know what it was, but something just clicked. He heard the message. He heard that it wasn't church going that would save him. It wasn't receiving communion that would save him. It wasn't even being good. And Frank was a good man that would save him. He heard that what he needed to do was to look to Jesus and put his trust in him. Trust him that he was the son of God. Trust him that he had died for him. Trust him enough to live for him. And for the first time, Frank asked Jesus into his life. I hate it when that happens. 
I'd been vicar of St. Mary Magdalene for 10 years. I'd been preaching that same message for 10 years, and Frank had been there for 10 years, and nothing happened. And then someone else comes along, preaches it, and Frank hears and is converted. (laughs) But the reason that Frank sticks so clearly in my mind is that three days later, I received a phone call from Avril, his daughter, telling me that Frank had died in his sleep. Talk about leaving it to the last minute. And at his funeral, we were able to say with great thanksgiving and great confidence that Frank had gone to be with the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he had heard about Jesus, he had looked at Jesus, and he had believed Jesus. He had received God's gift of eternal life. And so forgive me, just for a moment, we're going to be quiet. There may be some of you, maybe one or two of you here, may just have that feeling of saying, no, actually, I need to do that. I've been coming to church for a long time, or maybe I haven't. I'm just coming along to see what this English church is all about. But I'm going to pray a prayer and ask that the Lord Jesus comes into our lives if that is what we want. Father God, I recognize that I am a sinner. I recognize that I have turned from you. I recognize that I have cut myself off from the source of life and that without you I am perishing. And now I turn to you. I look to you. I trust you. I want to trust you. And I ask you to come into my life. Come in so that I might know you. Come in to be my Lord and my Saviour and my friend. Make me the person you want me to be. And I will seek to follow you in your strength for the rest of my life. Amen.